you know, sometimes you, there are moments in uh, my, my marriage and in my family life where my wife kind of says to me, you know, uh, are, are you going to do something about this? Or, you know, she just kind of generally gets a little bit frustrated with me. It happens more than I would like to, to admit, but, and I'm clearly in the wrong a lot of times. I mean, like, you know, the world is coming apart in my house. I have four kids. People are screaming, yelling, doing all kinds of things. And my wife comes in and says, like, are you just going to sit there? And I'm like, what? Like, what, what's, what's, what's wrong? I mean, like, what, what, could, what should I be doing in, in this moment? So she gets frustrated with me in these moments where I just kind of am sit there, uh, sitting there and doing nothing. And I'm like, the kids aren't near my easy chair. Like, I can't, you know, I mean, like, bring them over here and I'll do something. And so that's obviously frustrating to her. And then the other side of that is... <clears throat> that sometimes my wife may also get frustrated with me when I overreact. So sometimes I underreact and I don't do anything, but then there's other times where I'm like, I'm doing this, let's go. And I walk in there like I'm Rambo, and I'm like, you, over there, over there, over there. You know, uh, you know just kind of get kind of domineering, kind of controlling, those kinds of things. By the time I get done, fathering my, my kids, it's just like everyone's crying, and I mean, it's just... It's horrific, and so there's these moments where I underreact, but then I, so that I'm like, okay, I'm going to get in there, and now I'm going to react, and if I'm honest with you, the times where I am underreacting, I'm sorry, overreacting, it really has to do with my comfort, my comfort of, you know, I'm just irritated by what's happening with the kids right now, and so as a dad, I'm so irritated right now, so I overreact because you have disturbed my peace. See, up until that point, I'm really so self-centered that I'm, I'm living in my peaceful world. I can live passively. The kids are, are being rebellious towards my wife, or they're brutalizing one another, but as long as I can't hear it, it's not happening, you know, kind of a deal. And so I'm kind of sitting in peace. And that's why I'm not reacting. But then as soon as it begins to irritate me, that's when I overreact sometimes. And so that's not God's plan for my life as a father. That's not God's desire for me. But guys, this is where we're at. And I, I, I can't think of a better passage to be going through this morning than this one. I don't know. I mean, we might find another one. I don't know. But, but this week, this passage was really speaking to me. As I was thinking about the fact, like, I don't know that there is another passage that would speak better to being a dad than this one. This is a, a, an incredibly poor uh, example of what it looks like to be a father. It's, a, it's an incredibly bad situation. In fact, there are commentators that don't even really commentate on this section. They're like, read it. It's really bad. Don't do that, you know, and then move on from there or something. It's, it's, a, it's, it's really quite horrific on so many different levels. But I think we can, it really accentuates some things that we do as dads. It really accentuates some things. So let, let's say that you're in the room today and you're like, I'm not a dad. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm a man and I, I may be a father at some point. 
um, or I was, I, I, I did have kids in the house, and now I don't, or something along those lines. I mean, if, you, if, if you're in one of those two situations, one of the things that you can look at is like, how did I screw this up in the past, or how am I not going to screw this up in the future? How, do, how can I learn from these things? And perhaps if, if it's in the past for you, you could say, you know, how can I help other young men who are on the road to uh, fatherhood or who are currently fathers, how do I help correct their behavior so that they can have healthy homes, so that they can have healthy marriages? How can I help with that? And so that's one way that you can do that. But, but some of you uh, gals are here. Uh, you might be single or you might be might be married, I mean, what you can be praying for is you can be praying for, you know, that you would have a godly husband someday who fits these qualities and things that you can be shooting for, things that you can be looking at. So many times I talk to uh, women occasionally, um, along with my wife, uh, who, who seem to be thinking to themselves, they're like, this, our home just feels crazy. Like, I don't feel like these things should be happening. Or they're not sure, and they don't know. They're like, we just have craziness in our home, and we don't know how to deal with it. But one of the, one of the things is that we get to come in and say, you're not crazy. You're not crazy because these are really good expectations. You can pray for these things in your husband. If your husband's teachable, you can bring him to church, and, and we can talk together, and we can help move uh, the ball down the field in this, in this area. And so those are, those are some ways that maybe you could work to apply this in your life. Let me read the passage, <clears throat> and I think I'll do a little bit of commentary as we go here. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you remember... Last, uh, last week, we didn't read this passage, chapter 33, much I mentioned it, but chapter 33 is about the reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. So uh, Jacob is on his way back home. God had told him to go back home to where your family is. And the direction, really, most commentators say is that his, he, he is supposed to be going back to Bethel. On his way back to Bethel, he has to be confronted with his relationship with Esau. He's confronted with that. They reconcile through God's miraculous intervention, even though Esau was most likely coming to kill him. He had 400 men with him. And so they kind of reconcile. They fall on each other's neck and they, they cry and they kiss and it's not like kiss each other on the cheek. That's a Middle Eastern thing. Anyway, um, and so that, that happens. And so then Esau says, he says, listen, let's, let's go together on our way. Why don't you come to my town, Seir? And Jacob basically says, ah, you go on ahead. I'll meet you in Seir in a, in a few days. But what happens is this. It says in verse 18 of chapter 33, it says, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Now, Shechem is not Seir, which is where he, he told his, his brother, I'm coming to Shechem. I'm coming to Seir, I should say. But he doesn't go to Seir. He goes to Shechem. So Jacob is back into his old ways. Jacob kind of lies. He cheats. He tells half-truths. Here's a guy who's really struggling again, continually. One of the consistent themes that we see throughout Genesis is that God's men, God's people, if you will, are these people who constantly have problems, and yet God stays consistent with his promises. So it says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, 
Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El uh, Eloe Israel. I have not tried to read that out loud before, so there we go. So here's Jacob. He comes safely to the city of Shechem, even though God has told him to go to, go to Bethel, and even though he told Esau he was going to Seir. So he's struggling once again, and he has not obeyed God. He's done half obedience. He kind of went back near the place where he was supposed to go, but he did not go back to the place that he was supposed to go. He's about 20 miles away. So then it says this, chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Now uh, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now this is a very serious matter right here. Here we have Dinah. She's, it sounds like she's about 14 or 15. She has all brothers. It's just her. So she's like, I got to get out of this tent that smells like a locker room and go meet some other people in this town. And so here's Dinah. She goes out, and she's like, I'm going to go find some girlfriends. I'm going to uh, go find some friends. But what ends up happening is she runs into a prince. Now, Jacob is in Shechem. The king of Shechem is Hamor, and Hamor also has a son named Shechem. Okay? So that would, it's, it's kind of confusing. He's in Shechem, but this son's name, the prince, is his name is Shechem. Shechem sees Dinah. And he basically says, she's mine. And who knows what happened? I mean, you can imagine the scenario if it were today. Dinah uh, comes to a new town. She says, I'm going out. I'm going to go find some friends. Heads out to a club, meets a guy. He's like driving a Ferrari or something like that. He shows some interest. Somehow one thing leads to another. She's back at his apartment, and he rapes her. Now, in no way would we say Dinah's responsible for this there may be some question as to whether it was rape or whether it was consensual in some sense. The evidence seems to point to the fact that this was rape. So this is a very serious matter, and we need to take it seriously. We don't want to joke about that. We want to make sure that we really call a spade a spade here. I think for our purposes, we can clearly say that this was rape. But this guy, Shechem, he loved the young woman, and he spoke tenderly to her. He was like, hey, I, 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 you know, I'd love to hang out with you some more, which seems off a bit. I just took advantage of you. Now I want to spend some time with you. So he says to his dad, hey, get me this girl. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace. That seems like a rational thing to do, right? Your daughter was just raped. And now you're just going to hold your peace right now? I don't know about you, but I'd be losing my mind until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. 
Jacob is peaceful. His sons are furious, absolutely furious. This is kind of interesting, right? But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Listen, uh, my son really loves your daughter. Let's let bygones be bygones. Here's a financial opportunity for you. There's no apology. There's no recognition of the fact that something horrific has just taken place. And we'll find out later that Dinah is still like being held captive in his home. And so he comes and says this. So Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers. So the dad just spoke and said, hey, I've got a lucrative deal for you. If you just give your, your daughter to my son. And then Shechem, the son who had taken advantage of Dinah, speaks up. And he says it to Jacob and to uh, her brothers. So Jacob and his sons. So this guy is speaking now with them. Let me find favor in your eyes. Wow, this is crazy. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Oh, man. <laughs> what would I ask for at this point? Uh, your head. You know, whatever. I don't know what it would be. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered. Isn't that interesting? Dad's not answering. The brothers are answering. The brothers are answering. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Oh, Jacob's a deceiver. The sons are deceivers as well. See how that's being passed down. We've been talking about how Jacob is a, is a deceiver, and now here we, here we have his sons who are also deceiving because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. They answer him deceitfully. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Now, stop for a second. If this is your first time at church, maybe ever, that might be an awkward statement. <laughs> like, like, uh, like, in fact, I would say even if you have been at church for a while, that's an awkward statement. We'll just acknowledge the truth right now. That's an awkward statement. Circumcision in those days was God's sign for God's male people. They were to be circumcised on the eighth day. They, and this was a sign for whatever reason of purity, that they were devoted to God. This was a religious symbol. God had given it to them in holiness for the purpose of, of, of holiness and to be reminded of the fact that they are followers of Yahweh. That is God's name. They're followers of God, and so they are to be circumcised in their flesh. So what they say is they say, we can't do this. We cannot uh, allow this uh, to happen, this marriage, to someone who's uncircumcised. So in a sense, it's, it's evangelistic. It's like, hey, I don't want to give away my daughter to somebody who is not a Christian. So become a Christian, and you can have our sister, I should say. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will, will we agree with you that you become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters and... and then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters to ourselves, 
and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you do not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. So get circumcised, and then this deal, this lucrative business deal of joining property, joining families, living together, all of this stuff. Uh, if you get circumcised, then we can do this. But if not, we're taking Dinah, and we're gone. Now, what's interesting about all of these promises that, that the king and Shechem have made is that they're all promises, in essence, that God himself is supposed to fulfill and has promised to Jacob and to his family. These are promises that God has offered to them. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a people. I'm, you're, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Think about what they're promising and how that is in competition with God's promises for his people. But these guys come back and they say, we want to invite you into our family, into like this big God family, and if you just become circumcised, we'll just we'll join with you. We'll, we'll do this religious rite with you, this holy act, and then we can be friends. Verse 18 says, Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem, the rapist. Verse 19, And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now... He was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the man agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. You wonder how quickly and under his breath he said that, you know? Like, hey, this is going to be awesome. We're going to get together. You just got to be circumcised. All right, let's just do this. You know, like, holy cow. Like, like, that is a big ask. These guys have some leadership. So, where was I? Okay, he said, uh, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, This is about to get good, all right? All right. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, so two sons, Dinah's brothers. Look at how the text is reminding us of something. These are Dinah's brothers. Remember what happened to Dinah. Dinah was raped. We got the two brothers. Took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Uh-oh. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their, sis their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses. They captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi... What's Jacob going to say? Think about this for a second. You have two sons that have 
instantly become serial killers. They've completely blown up, blown out of proportion. I mean, Shechem is the one who committed this horrific crime, and yet they go against a city, and they commit genocide. What do you say as a father? A God following, Yahweh following father. What do you say to them? And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The end. That's the end of that story. And then it says, And God said, Hey, why don't you go to Bethel? Holy cow. Dude, I mean, look at all the things that are going on there. You've got rape. You've got lying, deceit. You've got, uh, you've got mass murder. The enslavement of these women and these children or what have you. How does the scripture stand here and, and act like we need to like follow it or something? How do we deal with this? Like this is God's guy. This is, this is the family. The, out of Jacob comes Israel. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, it starts with mass murder, kind of. How do we deal with that? Well, one of the things that we need to look at is this. is like, why would a book that claims to show the way to God show how jacked up the people in that, that book are? Why would this book be telling on itself? The only logical explanation is this, is that the people doing good things is not the way toward heaven. It's not the way toward the afterlife. This, this scripture is, is, is saying something. It's saying, hey, God's chosen people are not perfect people. They are shown warts and all. They are people who have serious, serious deficiencies in their character, they are people who have serious problems in their lives. That's the first thing. The, the other thing that we need to see about this is that God's promises still stand in spite of our human sinfulness. That God, in spite of how sinful and despicable Jacob is, along with his sons and whatnot, God's promises still stand. This is not about God's people working to get with God. This is about God working to get his people. God is the one who does the work. We must see that. One other thing is this. When you read scripture, there's sometimes that you come across passages, especially in the Old Testament. Read the book of Judges, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The book of Judges is all about the decline of a nation. You could read the book of Judges and you, you, you could say, oh, we should be like Gideon or we, we should be like Jephthah and follow God. But when you read those stories and you see the lacking character in these people, the lack of knowledge of their God, you could read Judges and you could be like, hey, I should be like these people. But there are horrific things tied to their life. What this means is this, is that Judges is not about, here's all these great people and how they followed God what it is about is it's about this God who continues to be faithful to an unfaithful people. 
that should be comforting to you and I. Because if you and I are really honest with ourselves, we will know this, that we are not faithful to God on any level. That God is the one who is faithful to us. But there's this. There's an is versus ought statement here, or fallacy, if you will. Just because it is in Scripture doesn't mean that it ought to be. Just because it's written there doesn't mean that, that God, that's what God wants in our life. Just because it is in Scripture and it's, it's read without commentary, I mean, meaning it just tells a story. It doesn't say, yeah, and this was good and this was bad. It just tells us a really horrific story. And so what we can know is this. Just because it is doesn't mean it ought to be. Now, here's some things that I want fathers to see in and through this passage. The first thing is this. Partial obedience by the father always endangers the ones we love the most. Partial obedience to God always endangers the ones we love the most. That's what we have with Jacob. God says, go to Bethel. He knew that he was supposed to go to Bethel. Instead of going to Bethel, he stops at, at Succoth, uh, which is a really bad town, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stops there for a moment. It's like, I really shouldn't be here. It'd be like stopping at Woodburn or something like that. <laughs> On your way to Salem. Sorry, Woodburnites. All right. Anyway, he stops at Suck and he's like, I really don't want to be here. So he goes to um, what is Shechem. Yeah, stops at Shechem. There's a, a, what he does is he goes to a city where there's a trade route going through. It would be like if God had called us to go to Staten. And we were like, you know what? I'm going to go to Salem. Because Salem is right next to the five, and I own a trucking company, and so I want to make sure I can get on and off the five very quickly. I don't want to go live in Staten. It's a little bit about what may have been happening, because Shechem is, is believed to have been more of like a trade route. It was, had direct access to the water or something along those lines. And so this was more convenient, perhaps. Perhaps he had nice property there. There was great grazing uh, lands there. But instead of having full obedience to God, he just had partial obedience to God, which is always whole disobedience. He was disobedient to God, and as a result of his disobedience, it endangers his kids. It endangers Dinah. Because now she's in this place where she should not have been. And it endangers Simeon and Levi and the other brothers their whole family, because now they're incited to violence because of what happened to Dinah. And dads, we can never come to the point where we think that somehow my sin isn't affecting my kids. We can never come to the point where we say that, that somehow, even though this sin feels private, even though they don't see this, it doesn't affect my kids. Because that's not true. Because you can try to speak to your kids about God. You can try to have a relationship with them. You can try to teach them good morals. But morality and walking with God is caught more than it is taught. You can say whatever you want, but your kids and my kids know the truth about who we are. Your kids and, know, and, and, and my kids know exactly what's going on, exactly how God feels. And here's the thing, when I understand that, when I see that in my kids, one of the things that I have to know is this, I need to go to my kids and acknowledge my sin. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian. I don't get to stand in front of my kids and say, dad is perfect, be like dad, and everything will be fine. 
because that is clearly not true. I have to go to my kids and I have to confess my sin and say, Dad was angry when he said this to Mom and he should not have said that. Dad was too aggressive with you. I'm sorry that I grabbed your arm like that, son. I didn't mean to hurt you. I was angry in that moment. That is not what God wants in my life. I'm, I'm sorry that I was so cranky this morning or tonight. I'm sorry that I have not lived the way that God would have me live. See, partial obedience always leads to endangering our kids. How do we combat that? We combat that with being real, with having true confession with our kids. You cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ without living out true confession in all of your relationships. Understand this. When you only partially obey, that's how to deal with it. It's to confess and repent with those around you and to God primarily as well. So partial obedience or dads are disobedience to God always endangers the ones we love the most. Secondly is this. Children need involved fathers. Children need involved fathers. Look at Dinah for a moment. Dinah is about 14 or 15 years old. And it says rather flippantly that Dinah just was like, hey, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to go I'm going to go see the women of the city, the women of the land. I'm going to go, go take off. Now, we're not talking about a modern city at all, which I'm not even sure which one's better, a modern city or, you know, this time period. But there's definitely no law. There's no police. There's no nothing. There's no one to reach out to. And here you have a young girl who leaves the home and says, I'm going to go out and just meet some people. Why didn't she have somebody with her? Why didn't she have one of her brothers with her? Why wasn't she chaperoned, as some commentators say, would have been the custom in that day for God's people? She was not chaperoned, so she's sent out alone. And it says this. It says that she was the daughter of Leah. We don't know why exactly, but it could be this, and that is that Jacob loved his other wife more than he loved Leah. He did not like Leah very much. He just kind of dealt with her in some ways. And so perhaps that was played out with the kids as well. And so he's less involved in her life. He's not involved in the things that she's doing. He's not intricately woven into what's happening in my home. And men, one of the things that we often do is that we are not uh, actively involved in what's happening with our kids. My wife, on a regular basis, has to come to me and she has to say, I feel like you're not responding to the things that are going on in our home. I know I'm telling on myself a lot this morning. But what she has to do is she has to come to me and she has to remind me of something. And that is that I have four short people that live in my house. And I am, in, I am supposed to be involved with them. I'm supposed to be involved in their life. And she is like crying out for me to be involved in what they're doing and how they're acting and all of these things. I can tell you that my home feels chaotic and out of control as I am not involved. It's not because my wife is doing a bad job. It's because I am not doing my job. See, children need an involved father. You also see the fact that uh, these two boys... These two boys are kind of taking over. They're, they're, they're kind of taking over, and, and, and they're beginning to speak in the middle of this conversation, and they're, they're, they're deceiving this king and his son. 
And here's Jacob. What's he doing? Is he involved in his son's life? Jacob doesn't come to them and say, hey, guys, this isn't right. We shouldn't be a part of this. Jacob's not involved. And so what is his great sin? Well, that is this. Passive leadership. Passive leadership. We talk about this frequently because I believe that this is a big problem in our world. I kind of told you that I kind of stay passive, but when my peace is interrupted, then I become overly active. I become aggressive. And that tends to be kind of the model for a lot of men. Not all men, but it tends to be a model. But what's happening is that I have this passive leadership, which really isn't leadership. It's being passive. It's not being involved in my kids' lives. It's not directing them. It's not leading them in these things. And what ends up happening is passive leadership leads to active rebellion. Passive leadership always leads to active rebellion or foolishness in the life of a child, which really is rebellion. You can see this repeatedly in the lives of children, where you have an uninvolved father. What takes place is this, is that you have single moms who are pulling out their hair and just going, would you help me figure out how to discipline my kids? Would you help me try to work with them? Why is that? Because there isn't a father in the picture, or maybe the father is in the picture, but he is uninvolved. Passive leadership leads to active rebellion. Now, I will say this. I don't purposefully not uh, actively involve myself with my kids. But recently, we've had some interactions where something became very apparent, and that is that we have some rebellion in our home. And it expresses itself in backtalk, or it expresses itself in just not obeying immediately. And so I was gone to Denver earlier this week. Um, my wife, Chris, her mom came and stayed uh, with her, with the kids while, while I was gone. And so her mom was like, holy cow, this is an issue. This is an issue. And so I came home and, and my wife said, hey, listen, we, uh, my mom kind of recognized something that's going on that we haven't dealt with. And I was like, man, that's so true. Like we've been letting this slide and letting this slide and letting this slide. And what happens is this, is that we get into these situations like in public where it's like we tell our child, hey, do this. And then all of a sudden there's a blow up in front of people and we're just going, we've, we haven't trained you to do this. Well, part of the reason is, is because we've been passive. We haven't trained them not to do that. And so we began uh, just in the last couple of days to have some conversations where we say there are consequences for rejecting what we have to say. When you say, but no, that's not the way that it is. That's not how it should happen. There are consequences for that because what you're saying is you're saying, mom and dad, I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. And that's why you should not be uh, telling me not to do this. And so what we had to do is we had to say, listen, we are the parent. You are to obey us. The expectation is that there would be obedience. Listen to this from Ephesians 6. It says this, 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
What, what that says is this, is that all of the modern day stuff on uh, parenting oftentimes is absolutely false. Parents, beginning with the father, should always expect obedience and should involve themselves with the issue when they disobey, especially when they're disobeying mom. Now, there's no question about it that moms typically, not always, moms are typically the ones who are dealing with the discipline issues at home uh, on a regular basis. But what I am here, I am here as my wife's defender and protector in some respects. And so when I come home and my wife says, this is what has taken place, I don't passively sit back and say, oh man, that sounds rough. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'll be on the easy chair. Would you bring me a beer? Uh, that's, that doesn't work. I have to say, okay, we have to sit down. We have to say, here's, here's what active leadership looks like. Okay, tell me exactly what happened. Okay, you said this, they said that. Okay, um, this is rebellion because you clearly told the child that this is what was going to happen. They argued with you and argued with you. And so therefore, I, I, we will bring the child in together and I'm going to lead the conversation because when you sin against mom, you sin against me. When you sin against mom and dad, you sin against God. And we cannot allow that. Why? Because it clearly says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Fathers, expect obedience. And when you don't get it, then you need to respond. Now the question is this, is how do we respond? How do we respond? I'll get to that in just a second. I actually went a little, little too fast here. Jacob held his peace. Derek Kidner says this, he, he desired peace more than honor. He desired to, to live peacefully rather than fight for the honor that should have been for his daughter. Perhaps it was motivated by money. He's too busy to even deal with these things because Hamor, the king, has just come to him and said, hey, we can get property, we can have kids together, I mean, it'll be amazing, and, and you know, everybody will be this great, happy family. So perhaps Jacob is motivated by business, by money, by greed. Perhaps he's motivated by those things. And guys, it's just the same with us. Why don't we involve ourselves why don't we obey? Why do we have passive, passive leadership? There are so many other things that get in the way. I see it with myself on a regular basis, and I'm constantly having to be corrected. My wife has to be able to bring those things to me. She has to be able to say, hey, I don't feel like you're involved here. And, she, and guys, she does it a lot. And guess what? She's right. She's right. My wife's perception of how things are going is often the reality that is really happening. Her perception is her reality. I have to hear her. But I get involved in ministry. I get involved in trips. Like I went to you know, Denver this uh, last week on a work trip. I get involved with, with too many things sometimes, and I have to listen to my wife. And so she comes to me and she says these things, and so... Uh, I have to figure out, okay, what is motivating me to not respond to the things that need to happen? And ultimately, it's because of this. My first responsibility isn't to be a pastor 
to the people in this room, but it is to be the, a pastor to the people in my home. I can't be an elder. I can't be a pastor in this church if I'm not pastoring my own kids, my own family. And pastoring means this. I'm laying down my life for my kids. I lay down my peace and my comfort and my security, and I give that up for my children. This is what fatherhood is. This is what it looks like. And so my first responsibility is to them. And if I'm, ne if I'm ever not taking care of my family at home, if I'm not taking care of them, if I'm not leading them well, if my wife is not happy with who I am and how I respond to her over a consistent period of time, I am disqualified as your pastor, as your elder. That should never be the case. And so, how do we respond to this? Well, in years past, I have totally, totally, not, to, I'm, I'm going to equivocate on that now. Okay, not totally, almost, uh, almost totally missed this. Because the answer to passive leadership is not aggressive leadership. And it's not passive-aggressive leadership. And it's not aggressive-aggressive leadership. It is, it's, it's not that. The, the answer to passive leadership is not to all of a sudden become aggressive. As I said, I go from underreacting to overreacting. I go from not responding to overly responding with anger, with a raised voice, with those kinds of things. What is the way forward in this? How do we, how do we move forward? Well, a couple things. It's not overreaction or underreaction, but appropriate reaction. So just a practical thing here. Many of us did not grow up in homes that have done well with this. And so what we need is we need godly counsel. We need wise counsel. We need input on our lives. Which means two things. One, you've got to look for it. And so what that might look like is reading a book. Might be asking, hey, I'm struggling in this area. I'm dealing with this issue in my life. And so I need some help with that. And so we might give you some books. We might give you some sermons. We might just meet with you. Or you may just need to involve yourself in the church. In fact, everybody needs to do this. And be a part of a community group. And allow yourself to be humble. Instead of coming to the table and acting like, I got my crap together and I don't need anybody else's advice like an arrogant and prideful man that we all can be sometimes. Instead of doing that, dropping the pretense and coming to the table and saying, I'm a messed up individual the same way that you have to come to Christ. You come as a messed up individual and you say, I need help, men. And it may mean joining the men's group that happens here on Saturday morning. And it may be, mean uh, joining a community group uh, that happens and finding a couple in that group and just saying, hey, can we just come over and just watch how you, how you do life? Can we just talk to you about some issues that we have going on in our life? Can we, can we figure out some things that are going on? Our kids are kind of getting out of control and I'm not really, no one's really speaking into my life in this. It's getting wise counsel. It's dealing with that. It's understanding this, that God's not calling you to be aggressive. God is calling you to go from passive leadership to active leadership. Now, how, now what do we see in God's leadership? See, God is our perfect father. And in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses says to God, he says, I want to see your glory. 
And God says, well, you can't necessarily see all of that, but here's what I'll do. And he sets something up with them. But then God like walks before him and kind of holds his hand over Moses. Like we believe this literally happened. And then God proclaims his name. In Exodus chapter 34, it says that the Lord passed before him. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You hear all that? Grace, mercy, love. He's all of these things but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does that even mean? It at least means this. God is so merciful. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. He loves. He does all of these things, but he is about justice as well. See, God is fully merciful, and he's fully just. When you look at Jesus, when Jesus comes, John writes in his gospel, he says, and the word became flesh, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Remember Moses was saying, I want to see your glory, God. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, that father-son relationship, God the Father, he's fully merciful and he's fully just. And then it says this, Jesus comes and he is full of grace and truth. And it kind of simplifies it for us, as Jesus does so often. Jesus shows us the true character of the greatest father. How does he do that? Jesus is full of grace. And he's also full of truth. Grace without truth is not gracious. Repeated grace, when truth is called for in my kid's life, leads to rebellion. Jesus brings grace to us in our lives with him, but it is perfectly combined with truth. And truth without grace is not truthful. Jesus comes and he is full of grace and he's full of truth. So there's a balance here. Now think about how, what it means to come to Jesus, what it means to come to God. When we talk about, hey, am I supposed to be passive or am I supposed to be aggressive in my family and in my life? The truth is, I need to be Jesus. I need to be God to my children, not in a controlling, domineering way, but I need to be full of grace and full of truth. I need to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but I also need to understand that I cannot clear the guilty. Our responsibility in this is, is this then, is to think through the gospel for a moment. How do you come to God? How do you come to God? Like, if you have relationship with Jesus Christ today, what does it look like? Well, first of all, it begins with truth. 
The truth is this. I'm a sinner who is so sinful that I deserve hell. I deserve death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. I deserve this. The truth is I'm so sinful that I deserve this. Our world knows nothing about this, doesn't care about this or anything, but this is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel says there is bad news on some level. And the bad news is this. Going on your current trajectory, where you are, you deserve death. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And that is his grace. He says, you're so sinful, Dad. You're so sinful that I had to die for you. I had to bleed out for you on a cross. But I was glad to do it. See, Jesus comes and he's full of grace and truth. And when we are, have fully realized this, and that is, I'm so sinful as a father that Jesus had to die for me, I can come to my kids with grace. I can come to my family. I can come to my wife with grace. Why? Because Jesus was gracious to me. How can I not extend grace to my family when God has extended grace to me through Jesus Christ on the cross? God the Father, in all of his perfection, has extended his perfection to you in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And as a result, he gives you the opportunity and the possibility not to just sit on your tail in your easy chair and say, you know what, if I have time, or if, I, if my peace won't be disrupted, if my game won't be disrupted, God allows you to say, you know what, he calls me to have active influence in the lives of my kids, but to do that with grace, and to do that with mercy, but to do that with gusto because that is what God has done for me. That is how God is a perfect father to me. This is a horrific story. It's horrific because this guy who's a follower of Yahweh has not cared about his daughter, has not led his sons well, and at the end of the story, he's not even concerned about the fact that they're serial killers. He's like, well, now we got to get out of here. This is a guy who needs to learn some things. And God is patient with him. And God is patient with you. We'll see that play out here. God is patient. God is patient with you. you, you did you come in here today and you say, I'm, I've screwed this up. Everything he's talked about, I've screwed up. I can see these ways. Jesus went to the cross. The truth is Jesus went to the cross for that sin. And so we get to revel in the reality that Jesus went to the cross for our sin. So we do that this morning through the act of going to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you so much uh, for how uh, you work in us and through us to do great and amazing things. Lord, I pray that we'd recognize the ways that we have dropped the ball. I pray that we would recognize and see the things that we have not done well. But Lord, I pray that we would revel in the fact that you went to the cross for us and that you paid for that. And today is a new start. 
Today is a new leaf we get to turn over and experience your grace once again. So, Lord, we ask you for this, and we, we praise you and thank you for the change that you're going to bring in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.